Hello, listeners. This is Morty Shapiro and Gary Saul Morrison. We're the authors of a new book called Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. And you are listening to the North Shore Podcast. Welcome to the North Shore Podcast, a podcast about the lovely cities of the North Shore, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, and food. My name is Pete, and I'm joined by co-host Scoo Walker. Scoo, how you doing, buddy? Doing great today, Pete. How about yourself? Hey, you came back from New York okay? That's all right? That's a rough one. Rough drive, tough drop-off. You, you left all your kid and all your money in New York, huh? What year of college? She's a freshman at Fordham. Yes, I did leave oh. all my money and then some. Which God, ties God. to this conversation. all right we have a sponsor for the show neuro noodle hey parents and athletes your kids get a physical every year right we'll include a brain map so you have a baseline to compare it to in case something happens it takes only 20 minutes to get the data you need to know if your athlete should get back on the field okay one of the things we like to do here at the north shore podcast is put a spotlight on our local people doing local great things today we're joined with President Morton Shapiro and Professor Saul Morrison of Northwestern University. They are the authors of many books, but specifically Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. President Shapiro, Professor Morrison, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Welcome. We'll see if it's our pleasure. We'll get back to you. Oh, don't worry. It's still early in the show. Not about you, Pete. All right. From here on out, it's Morty and Saul, right? Okay. We're just talking over a couple sandwiches downtown. All right, gentlemen, can you give a little background on, on you both? Obviously, you're both at Northwestern, but we have many new listeners that are listening to the podcast. Could you give a quick background on yourselves? You start. Oh, he calls on me. Well, you know, my name is Morty Shapiro. As you pointed out, I am entering my 13th year as the 16th president of Northwestern. Before that, I was president of Williams College for nine years. But most importantly, I've been a economics professor for my whole adult life. I teach and I write and I try to hold on to my administrative job during the day. And Saul, what about you? You know anything about uh, humanities? Well, I've been at Northwestern teaching Russian literature and sometimes other literature uh, for 35 years now. Before that, I spent a dozen years doing the same thing at the University of Pennsylvania. My job is to get students to love literature. I hope I do. What, what an easy job. Some of your classes, now you guys both teach together, right? You have a pretty big class together. Which which class is that? You know, Pete, we, we started teaching when I first got here. I guess the first year or so we met, we didn't know each other before, but we started my second year. So this will now be, I guess, the 12th year that we taught a course together. And um, it started, Pete, as a course on sort of how different disciplines approach the search for truth. I do empirical econometrics, so empirical social science. Paul uh, saw, of course, as a humanist. And, you know, we take different psychology, sociology, anthropology, physics. How do you approach the nature of truth? But the course has evolved over teaching it to now 1,300 undergrads at Northwestern into one on how to have meaningful dialogue. So some of the original readings, you know, are made it to year 12, but a lot of it's a new course because we really feel, and that's why we wrote this most recent book about how do you regenerate meaningful dialogue. Morty, one more year, right? That's it? Yeah, you know, it'll be 22 years, God willing, as a president. 
average president last six and a half. So I feel pretty good about that. I'm still a professor, but uh, it's been a pretty long run and looking forward to their searching for president number 17 at Northwestern. And I have no doubt they will trade up. Right, Saul? No one will replace you. And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> My so professor will probably be taller. Are you going to break it here, what you're doing next, or we're going to have to still wait and see? You, you, know, have, uh... yeah, I'm not, you know, I still have a year. I, I actually have almost uh, okay, exactly okay. 52 weeks. I really haven't been thinking about it. I, I have, All right. you know, so many things to do. We got move in, coming in, the start of the football season Friday night. I'm just, or, I, I'm, Marty, not, I'm really not thinking of anything. Morty, a no will suffice. A no will suffice. Yeah, no, That's... it's true. <laughs> People don't believe it, but it's true, Pete. You've got a great highlight reel. Uh, you've done quite a few things in your tenure. Uh, anything you want to point out that you're most proud of before we get to the book? You know, I, I let others figure that out. You know, we got uh, okay. a couple of things right. We got a lot of things wrong, but uh, it's really a, a wonderful place. I mean, there are a number of great research universities, global research schools, and we're one of them, but we're also a school that really cares about undergrads and scoop. You know, I, I know Fordham does as well. Your money is going to be well spent there for your child whom you just dropped off. But, you know, you know, there are research universities Saul knows about that you kind of phone in the undergrad because they, you know, it's so much about their PhD students and their professional schools. And we have great graduate and professional schools, but we really care about undergrads. And that makes me proud. Well, I wish she was going there. That was one of her top choices. But, <clears throat> well, it was our loss. She can come here for grad school. You know, we have She'd rather be 15 hours away. That's home. a statement about you. I'm sure it is. Oh, believe me, it is. Easily understandable. But we have She's... Kellogg School of Management, and we have a Pritzker School of Law, and we have a great medical school, and a whole range of master's and PhD programs. So we'll be looking for her. Okay, gentlemen, you got a whole bunch of books that you've done. And this latest one... Minds Wide Shut, that's a sequel to Sense and Sensibilities. You wrote this one during COVID. What was the inspiration? I know it's a common question, but it is a common question. How did you guys come up with this book? What was the uh, spark that said, you know what, we got to get together on this topic? Well, let me say one thing about COVID, and we have that in the preface a little bit, that um, we were coming back from class in the middle of March of 2020. I guess it was our final class. And we had been working on the book for a year, particularly we started with the economics chapter and we were moving into politics, but we hadn't written religion, hadn't written the history of fundamentalism, hadn't integrated literature and, and all these things. And you know, I said to Saul, man, if we only had like eight weeks, we could really finish this book, but we don't have eight weeks because he's teaching again and I'm teaching, everything's going on. The next thing we know, the world shut down. So we had a lot more time to, focus on the book. And, and we did have a draft by, it wasn't April, May, but by the end of August, we had a draft and it went out to reviewers. And I think we put the book to bed in October or November of, of last year. And it came out in the, during the winter, but uh, we couldn't do the book tour that we did for the previous book because right. of COVID. But um, we're doing a lot of podcasts and the book seems to be selling pretty well. So do you want to talk about how we decided to focus on fundamentalism? Well, we were originally going to do a sequel just to Sense and Sensibility, which is about what economists can learn from the humanities by doing the reverse, what humanists can learn from economists. That was gonna be called Price and Prejudice. But gradually, you know, 
with all the polarization in society, our class being just the sort of thing that would work in the opposite direction, we decided to do something on polarization and the importance of real dialogue. So that, that's how that came out. And then we used that, you know, um, the material we had, the economics chapter, as a chapter of the book. Was it the uh, 2016 election, like Trump, did it spark this? What, you know, the shock of Trump winning, did that come into play in this book? Yeah, no, Pete, it definitely was part of it, but it was, Trump was more the symptom than the cause. Yeah. And so was Brexit vote, which yeah. was at least as shocking as Donald Trump being elected president. Um, but we, we think that there are a whole bunch of forces that have led to polarization and the decline in respectful, meaningful dialogue. And part of it's just manifested with the extremes on the right and the left. And part of it is just that you know, people are living in silos now, echo chambers, a lot of people call them. And then, you know, when I grew up, it didn't matter whether you watched Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw or Dan Rather, you know, they all told the story pretty much the same, which magazine you read or whatever. But now with the stratification within media, you know, people are living in echo chambers and, you know, they hear their words reflected off the walls and it makes them feel really good. But we believe it's really bad for democracy. That's why we really wrote the book, right, Saul? Yes, for democracy and for learning more about the world, for what university is supposed to do, find truth, find better answers. You, that doesn't work very well when ideas are not open to criticism. Well, Marty, you brought it up. I mean, there wasn't as many choices, you know, back in the day. You had your three choices. Everybody was drinking from the same hose and, you know, you could debate. Now, confirmation bias is everywhere. Just keep watching Fox News, keep watching CNN, you get to hear what you want. And that's why I don't see the point. If you're conservative, you know what, no matter what Fox says, I'm going to vote for the conservative. If, it, if I'm on the left, I'm going to watch CNN, I'm going to you know vote for the left. There's just so many choices now. Do you think that there's more choices, social media is out there helping with the choices. It's really hard to have a common goal now for everybody to gather around Pearl Harbor, man on the moon, 9-11. You know, we had just what happened in Afghanistan. That's not a big enough deal for the country to uh, come together. What do you think it'll take for everybody to have a common goal? Because if you're in a foxhole or if it's fourth and one, it's hard to find an atheist in that foxhole. What needs to happen in America for us to get our act together? Let me start and sort of and then Saul can answer that question. That's what we do as tendered faculty is yep. we avoid tough questions. And we say what we wanted to say anyway. But I want to get back to something, Sku, that you said right before we went live on this. And you, you said something like, well, you know, far left and far right. I think I was the one who said they almost have a begrudging respect for each other. But what they hate is 90 degrees away. You know, 180 degrees is one thing, but 90 degrees they don't have any morality. They don't have any. I think that's what your point was, Scoo, that they just compromisers, compromisers, right? They don't have the strength of their convictions. And, and that's what this book really is about. It's about how to learn from each other, treat each other with respect and, and really engage in a productive way, not in a screaming way that everybody's screaming and no one's listening. So, and actually Saul and I are very different levels of optimism mainly Gasol is, is an expert in Russian history, which suggests that the world is indeed coming to an end. But Saul, is there any event that could bring us together? What do you think? That's a really interesting question. It would have to be the sort of event where people felt that it was 
more important to work with each other than to use the crisis as a way to beat up on each other. That, that would be what it has to be. You know, and, and you could tell, you know, and we've had many of those in our history, Pearl Harbor obviously being one. I don't think it's impossible, but I find it hard to imagine you know, what it would be now. It wasn't, you know, a pandemic, which would pandemic right. Republicans and Democrats alike, right? You know, this crisis in Afghanistan, I mean, okay, so now you get everybody <clears throat> criticizing the president. They most want to criticize each other, right? What would it be? I don't know, you know, if there were a you know, if we had a major depression, well, you could play the blame game on that. What couldn't you? There probably is something, and I'm hoping there's going to be, but I can't imagine it. Now, Mo Morty, was it you that said, I can't remember it was in the book, because, you know, you had a couple weeks to prepare, and you got numbers and data floating in your head. Didn't some people on the left say there was 62%, they would rather have a meteor hit the earth, 60% chance than Trump winning? What What was that yeah, all about? Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of data like that, including some other recent polling that more than half of all Americans say that the greatest threat to America is other Americans. Now, when I grew up with Saul, it was the Russians. And now maybe some people say the Chinese, but the greatest threat to America is other Americans. I mean, boy, that degree of polarization is just extraordinary. But, you know, I'm much more optimistic than you are, Saul. And as I alluded to before that, you know, I, I, do, I believe there's a pendulum of incivility and lack of respect and uh, you know open disdain for dialogue and it swings back and you know Saul thinks it's more of like a snowball gathering up speed and volume going in setting off an avalanche of the end of democracy which is a little scary uh, to say the least so I, I you know I, I think that we're gonna we're gonna come back uh, a little bit but Saul you you you're one pessimistic guy aren't you yeah i guess i am about this anyway if you look at you know russia in 1917 when it immediately had a democratic government when the czar fell if you look at france right after the you know <clears throat> the execution of louis the 16th and you had a very radical democratic government what happens is that you get accelerating intolerance so that okay our our group has won we can get rid of all the people on the other side and have a terror and execute but then they split and then they split and they split you know over and over again finally robespierre gets it and then the people who got him by the way got it after that you think you've won but it gets worse and worse at an accelerating rate and what i see look there were articles in the new republic in the 90s about i i have them i saved them about the um the crisis in free speech on campus being a crisis already back then. But you know, it didn't change a whole lot from the late 1990s. It changed to 2010. But the change has been accelerating enormously, right? And both in society in general and on campuses. And that's why I think it's a snowball going downhill. And at the rate we're going, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years, Americans were going to Russia for freedom, not because they're freer, but because we are going to be even worse than they are. Boy, that's a scary thought, Saul. And, you know, I, I think history is going to say January 6th was the low point in this yeah. country over the course of generations, and then we're going to rebound from them. I don't oh. think I'm going to be retired in, in uh, Siberia in 10 years, Saul. So. Just our small podcast here, we've seen where 
we really have tried to be open-minded because that's what your book is about. Have an open mind, have dialogue, discuss. But when you come to politics, oh my! even if it's a school board election, you bring somebody from either side on, it's almost like you've touched nuclear waste because the other side won't come on. Goo, you've seen that on the show where... Isn't it crazy? We're 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 labeled on mute, which is bad for a podcast. Which which (laughs) from my perspective of it, it's I don't know if it's people want to come on and talk about it. It's the other side that doesn't, but yet they want to hide behind the keyboard and and scream that way, which is I it's hard for me to gauge that perception now since I've always been kind of in that middle group forever you know recently it's i see that the extreme ends are getting bigger and the middle shrinking but i don't know if that's necessarily true if it's just more of social media i know trump has kind of been used as the scapegoat but is it really more the fact that he was an outsider to the political landscape well, coming well, in the- and that that scared people Trump was a symptom. There weren't a lot of polarization. He wouldn't have been elected, both because no one would vote for someone with his personality. And also, you know, you wouldn't have someone like his opponent saying that half the country was a group of basket of deplorables. Don't get people to get less extreme by insulting them. Well, between both of them, you know, they both contributed to that. What I'm seeing is it's, uh, what is it called? Loss aversion. It's twice as painful to lose than the joy of winning. I think the other side wants to see you lose rather them win. And I think that's the problem we're, you know, running into. In order for people to get educated, to be objective, they have to read more than a headline. Like with a podcast, you'll do a 30-minute podcast, but they'll only look at the two-minute promo, and that is supposed to be the rest of the podcast. We really are in a loss here what to do. The people in the middle won't come on. The only people that will come on are highly passionate, which means they're on the polar end. And when you do bring them on, one side doesn't want to come on after the next side, and you're stuck to talking to one side. It's, it's We're trying to figure our way around it, guys. That's why we read your book. Well, you're fighting a good battle. I mean, we're passionate, even though most yeah. people would describe us as somewhere in the middle. Okay. Uh, and well, here, I'll, th- I'll, I'll throw this one out. Fight there, Pete. All right. We'll keep fighting. Here, here, here. They're intolerant. It's possible to be intolerant everywhere. Where if you just close your mind, right? Right. Um, it's true. You're more likely on the extremes. The question is, are you open-minded? Not you know, not where are you on the spectrums? Well, if you're open mind, if you're open-minded, you send your kid to college. The people on the right say, "Why am I sending my kid to college to be taught liberal views?" You, you've heard that one before. What? How do you guys respond to that one? I don't teach liberal views. I just teach conservative views. I don't teach liberal views. I teach how to examine arguments, you know, and how to understand, this is what novels are good for, how to understand another person's point of view, empathize intellectually and emotionally with someone unlike yourself. That's how I teach it. And I've had students from different religions and different political perspectives. They all, I haven't found very many who don't think that, at least in principle, empathy is a bad thing. Yeah, I would just add that, you know, I think a lot of people worry that students would be indoctrinated because they look yeah. at the data. And we have data in the book about the vast majority of professors in American higher education, about what 1.6 million faculty across our 4,000 colleges, universities, you know, vote Democrat. We had one line. I was from Harvard. They had two faculty out of hundreds who voted for President Trump or one or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, but people would think it's easy to indoctrinate 
18 to 22 year olds have never tried to do it. Not that I've tried to do it, but these are very independent. And, you know, Saul and I have taught for a long time at a range of different institutions. And, you know, these students have, they might give you back what you want on the test so they can get an A, but are you really going to change their view? I mean, I don't think, I don't try to, but if I tried to, I would be frustrated. These students are very independent minded. No, I, I think Morty is absolutely right. You don't have to go in and somebody tried to indoctrinate students, very likely. Uh, unlikely to succeed. The problem is not that people are being indoctrinated, but that they only hear one point of view, so they don't know another point of view is, and they can't take it, understand it seriously. It's not indoctrination. It's it's lack of intellectual diversity. You know, just from a small sample size that I have witnessed, it's not, you're right, it's not indoctrination, but it's more teaching to a certain opinion, but not providing that other side to, for that student to analyze and be more open-minded about. It seems like it's, here's how I feel, and then that's the only way, so these students learn that way without opening their minds. And I don't know if that's where that comes from, because you try to teach the kids to look at both points of view and then decipher for yourself the right, wrong, in between, whatever it might be. We, we grade our students in our classes now by how the strength of the argument they make from the opposing view. You know, the great John Stuart Mill said, he who only knows his own view knows a little of that, right? So that's the theme for our course. It's a course on generating meaningful dialogue, you know, right, Saul? I mean, that's how we grade them. It's, okay, here's a point of view on, say, who should get uh, vaccinated first, or what do you do with the minimum wage? Or what do you do to, you know, battle against climate change? And present your view, present the strongest case from the opposing view, and then talk about how your view was influenced by that. That's what we do in our weekly papers. And it gives them good practice in actually opening up their mind to the fact that they might be wrong. You know, this book about fundamentalism, the definition of fundamentalism very simply is that if you have a view that's fundamentalist, it can't be disproved. So, and if you, if, if it can't be disproved, your opposing view are not just misguided, they're idiots. How come they not see the truth? And once you feel that, it leads to a demise in democracy, doesn't it, So, No, I mean, democracy ends on the idea of legitimate difference of opinion. That what you have is an opinion. God didn't speak to you directly and tell you how to vote. And what, you know, this is the, based on your partial experience. Everyone's experience is partial. It's only a part. Based on fallible, you know, reasoning. You haven't always been right. Hasn't always been right. And therefore, you can learn from the other you know, sometimes you're going to make a mistake. Sometimes you have a good idea, but your execution is bad. The world is complicated and you don't know everything. And that's why you have, it, it benefits from having different points of view. Democracy depends on that. If one side is all good and all true and everybody else is wrong and evil, then you have, there's no reason to have a, a democracy. You have a one party a state, a dictatorship, right? So the notion that democracy depends on crediting the other side with good motives and some arguments that you may not agree with, but which makes sense, which means you look for the best arguments on the other side, not the worst. A question about the, the future of colleges, because college is an information delivery device. Now with YouTube and everything, college is a information delivery device, and it's also a proctor to verify that you have the knowledge. Do you think it's possible for 
for students to get knowledge from somewhere else and be able to be proctored to verify they have the information with a degree from somewhere? Do you think that that's what the future holds? Because the, the costs for education keep going up and up and up, the have and the have-nots. Well, education equals the playing field. Can you give me a, your insight of what the future looks like for, for colleges and education? Actually, the first of our three books has a chapter on that. Not that I'd expect you to have read that since no. only people in our immediate families read that book. But Not even them. <laughs> not, and not and only about half of them, but I mean, you put it well. I mean, there's the human capital, teaching people things, knowledge-based and you know, there's a question, can you do that through MOOCs or can you do that on the web or can you do it in person? And there's a lot of value to the personal thing. We do believe in the flipped classroom that sometimes rather than just the lectures, you put the lectures online like we did last year and then you just do discussions. And so there's different ways. And I think we've learned from the global pandemic to be more effective as teachers. There are things in addition to that conveying knowledge. And, and let me just tell you stories. As president for 22 years, I, I preside over reunions and people come back for their 10th and 25th and their 50th. And they always say, you know, President Shapiro, uh, oh, it's great to be back on campus. I said, well, what brought you back? Why do you love your institution? And they say, you know, I, I, I was in a fraternity or sorority where I did an intramural. I was in the gospel choir. I was in the band. They give all their extracurriculars. And I said, well, what else? Oh, I watched the sunrise and I did this. And, I, and they give their other things. And they talk about their friends. And finally, I say, did you ever take a class? I mean, give me a break. I'm a professor. And literally, it never even occurs to them to say I studied Shakespeare or I studied global inequality or I studied quantum physics. I mean, it's like they don't even remember. Now, it is what they are, but they learn from each other. And peer effects are incredible. And a number of us have actually done empirical studies of how you are influenced by your roommate, if it's random assignment. And there's a whole literature about that, but the learning outside the class. Now, Saul, for most of his career, has been a faculty fellow at one of our residential colleges. And Saul, I mean, they love your classes and my classes and other classes, but they love the residential legion experience. And that's a 24-7 education. You know, we teach a couple hours a week, right, Saul? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it, it, it's a culture that each institution has. I know, you know, having before at Northwestern, I was at University of Pennsylvania, completely different culture. And the students acculturate each other and absorb the culture, their attitudes to learning, attitudes to, you know, what's to its values, what's important. And they don't get that mostly from the classroom. They get it a bit from the classroom, but mostly, you know, mostly from each other. The courses that they do remember tend to be ones that did not just provide information, but changed something about the way they looked at life or the way they think, or gave them an inspiration into some, you know, field that they never would have thought they had. Something that really changed them, you know. If you just look at college as a way of pouring information into the heads, that's really not what it is. A lot of people on the outside look at it that way, and they don't see why well, why can't you just do it all, you know, as recorded lectures? What difference does it make if you're president of a lecture and watch it recorded? To which, you know, my I always answer, well, do you still go to live concerts? Do you go to live sports events? Why not just watch and watch a recording? They've never thought of it. Do you go to the theater? You know, you could watch a, a play being, you know, filmed. Why do it that way? Something is added by presence, right? But they haven't thought it that way. And the, the key reason, I think, is that they're thinking of education simply as information. It is information, of course, but it's not only information. 
Well, the reason I bring that up, guys, is we're trying to level the playing field, the have and have nots. Having a degree from Northwestern, that's a whole lot better than a degree from a state school. You know, it's it, it carries weight, it helps you get employed. What you major in dictates, you know, your future lifestyle. Do you think there should be some prerequisites out there for the kids so that they understand that study anything that you want, just be prepared to know that what kind of lifestyle do you want? You go into finance, you have one lifestyle. And if you go into another major, you it's another type of lifestyle. Do you think we should have the kids go through that? Because sometimes they get their degree and they're like, hey, wait a minute, it's hard to find a job. Yeah, Pete, I, I actually think they have a lot more understanding of that than others might suppose. Uh, yeah. you know, I teach a lot of econ math, double majors, and some of them are, you know, the, the ones who are going into McKinsey and consulting, somewhat of a different lifestyle than if they're going to Goldman, you know, into yeah. banking, and they know that. Then I have the other ones who are going for not-for-profits and the ones who are going to go on to law school, whatever, you know. So I think they have a pretty good appreciation, but it, but it, as, as an economist who's written a lot on, Exactly what you said, how the returns to public versus private, you know, selective, less selective, one major right. versus another. The vast majority of schools, when you get your degree, they, they, you're going to do pretty well. I mean, you know, 8% of Americans who grow up in the bottom 20% of the income distribution in their mid-30s end up in the top 20%. But if you have any higher education degree, it's 24%. And if you have one from, you know, a, a flagship public, like the great one we have in Urbana-Champaign, it's 42%. Yeah. If it's from one of the prestigious privates, it's 52%. You know, so they all give. And, and, and then one thing, I, I once wrote an article, I looked at, you know, how irrelevant it is to be in an obscured a humanity versus humanities course versus, say, a business degree or an engineering degree. And it's, it was interesting what I found out, Saul. So I think I mentioned this in our class that, if I, I think classics. So you're studying Latin and, and ancient Greek, right? Versus accounting. I was thinking really applied versus. And the interesting thing is when you hit in the age in the 40s, you're making the same amount of money. Now, the people aren't working in ancient Greece, right? You know, they, they learn all kinds of thinking skills and they might be in publishing or whatever they're in. But uh, now they may never make up for the fact that they started 40 thousand and the accountants start at, at 80, but eventually they do somewhere in the age earning profile, get that same amount. So, you know, if you get a degree and you work hard, you're generally going to do really quite well compared to uh, stopping at high school. And, you know, the evidence is really clear that um, investing in higher education is a very good economics decision. Saul, anything to add to that? No, I think that's, that, I think that's, that's right. And but the one thing I, I would say is that you know, in reply to your question, um, if there's one thing I don't think my students either at Penn or even at Northwestern need is to be told to consider what their future career is going to be more. <clears throat> that is something they do not need to be told. They need to be told that, listen, that's, this is the only chance you're going to have in your life just to, to learn for the sake of learning <clears throat> in a concentrated way. That's what they need to do. Now, it, it's true. That's probably not true everywhere. I can imagine, right. you know, small liberal arts colleges might have a different, I don't know, it might be different, but certainly not in the places I've been. Right. It's a great question, but there are these non-pecuniary, non-monetary returns to higher ed as well. And I'm sure, Scoo, you're going to see that with your child. And, you know, you're not only much more likely to vote 
much more likely to be active in a PTA, much more likely to volunteer generally in a community. You're more likely to, you know, go to be vaccinated. More like, I mean, more likely to get vaccinated. You're more likely to do a lot of things that, that help for citizenship, independent of financial returns. And those non-monetary returns are extraordinarily valuable to a democracy. So even if you're deciding to go into a certain educational experience and going into a career that's not going to make you uh, in the top 1%, you're still going to have a lot of the attributes that make democracy thrive. I'm curious to uh, get your opinion on the the cost of the, of the schooling now. I mean, it is exorbitant. And sometimes it, kids coming out of there, you know, financing it themselves or partial, yeah. can they really get a job that's going to offset that that they owe. And do you kind of see that? How is that trajectory? Is it continuing to go spiking higher or is it going to level off or, or lower? Well, you know, I could see that as a concerned parent of, an under, of a first freshman. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, there's again, there's a, overall, I mean, yeah, no, there's a lot of evidence. It depends on where you go, what do you major in? Right. Again, I happen to be one of the dozen or so economists who's had a whole career answering that question. So it's a little hard to summarize it in, in one sentence or two, but there is a chapter in the economics chapter in our new book that is about forgiving debt, because you alluded to the fact that there's 1.6 trillion in, in student loan debt, and should you forgive it or not, and depends on who owns, owes it and what they're doing. And we argue that blanket, you know, forgiving would be really regressive, you know, regressive tax. And it's the poor subsidizing the rich, the undereducated poor subsidizing the very well-educated rich. And that would be a terrible public policy. But there certainly are skew instances where people don't get a college degree. About 70% of people with student loan get got a college degree. 31% of them got a post-collegiate degree, a master's or a PhD. People forget about that. And you know, a lot of the, you know, at Northwestern, most of the student aid get. Is, is Pellock students who got their MBAs and is a really good policy to forgive, you know, our MBA. I love Kellogg, I teach there, but, you know, is that good public policy to forgive debt for people who are working in the corporate world? Maybe if they're working in a not-for-profit world, you might, but it's a little more complicated than that. But, and at places like Northwestern, third of our students, now we're 75,000 or so all in, third of our students pay less than 10% of that less than 7,500. If you're at a school that has the endowment and the will to provide need-based aid, a lot of students pay zero. And then it goes up to the ones from families affluent enough like yours, presumably, to, to afford the full fee. But if you look at the private colleges, universities, so you, what, what percentage of all the many millions of students at private not-for-profit colleges or universities pay the sticker price? You know what it is, Saul? I would guess about 15%. Yeah, I hate playing this game with Saul because he knows everything. It's between 10 and 15%, depending if it's college or university. So you're right again. For those parents who are affluent enough to pay the full extraordinary amount that we charge, um, many of them are very, very, very affluent and they could probably afford it. And actually, the percentage of after-tax income that people charge for the top 5% of Americans to pay college tuition is a smaller percentage now than it's been, which is a shocking but true fact. 
So you have more money left over for other, for charity and supporting wonderful things like the North Shore podcast. <laughs> Professional. Gentlemen, uh, Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Defied Us. It's a sequel to your other book, Sense and Sensibilities. Could you give us a quick synopsis of the other book? And we would love to invite you to come back on and talk about that book as well. He just wet our whistle on that one, guys. That book's still doing very well. In fact, we saw a display in a bookstore in China recently where it came out a couple of months ago in, in Mandarin. And apparently it's selling very well over in China. So we're very big in China. You didn't know that, but we are. They love us yeah, in sure. That's selling well. Uh, you know, w- one thing is, is a global market now. And you get your book translated if it's modestly successful, like most of our books, and comes out in, in other languages. Uh, Sense and Sensibility is about, and Sense, C-E-N-T-S, is a play on Jane Austen's classic. And, and it's mm-hmm. about, you know, even though economics is a really powerful discipline, it's very insular. And if we learn from the humanities and the allied humanistic social sciences, it would be a much stronger field. Our predictions would be more accurate and our policies would be more effective. So Saul, what, what else from that book? Yeah, you, you would understand that some problems that look like they're solvable from one point of view really need more than one point of view to do. And that's what people in a profession any profession usually forget. They know their own tool, but they don't know to bring something else in. And, you know, not just economists can learn from humanists, humanists can learn from economists and different fields can learn from each other. So it, part of what we're doing was an example of how that, how that works. We have a chapter, basically, Minds Wide Shut, which sort of takes it in the other direction, how the humanists can learn from the economy. You know, that book was easier to be not surprising that it went into paperback quickly and it's been translated and done really well. I got a great review and full page in the Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, London Times, everybody loved that book and it's sold really well. When you write about polarization, you know, we have really been criticized from the people from the squad and the far left for what we write about the Green New Deal. We have really been criticized from the right wingers because, you know, we're just liberal academics and it's doing okay, but it struggled a bit to find a market. And when it gets reviewed in the very conservative press, you know, they usually say some good things about it, but then they usually trash me personally as, a, you know, as the king of the snowflakes, as called by Fox News, defending safe spaces and all that. And, and then the, the, the far left doesn't like Saul because he believes there's great literature. So, you know, th- this one's struggled a little bit more than I expected Saul to find a market. It's doing OK. It has not yet hit like our previous book, Saul. But we're not giving up hope. It's really something people, I come across, you know, people who agree with you, but don't want to agree with you because it's you, you know, and that's part of it. Right. There's a lot of that. Dr. Morrison, one last question. Can you summarize Tolstoy's foreign peace in two sentences, please? (laughs) Sure, I actually can. The world is a place that doesn't fit a theory or intellectual system. It is filled with uncertainty and contingency and wisdom consists in learning to make wise decisions without perfect knowledge. You know, Pete, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones. Uh, George R. R. Martin is a proud yeah. man. We just brought him back and gave him an honorary degree. And, you know, he wrote the books on which the series was based. But I was watching their famous episode where they had, I think it was called Battle of the Bastards. And they had this unbelievable fight. And right before Jon Snow says, they say, what are you going to do? How do you predict the battle? And he says, you know what? You can't predict the battle. Get a good night's sleep. 
And I never knew that until Saul, I'm teaching the class, he goes, that's a line from War and Peace, right? Isn't that what happens? When one of the generals said, you can predict it's like a chess match, if you do it, and then it turns out war is chaos. And he said, get a good night's sleep. And that was, wasn't that right, Saul? That's one of the most famous lines from the novel. All the generals are there, you know, saying, well, we need this plan and that plan and this one, and we have, we have a science of warfare, we're gonna do this. And the lead general who has been overruled by the emperors says, gentlemen, it's already past midnight. You can't change the orders anyway. And the most important thing before a battle is a good night's sleep. Meaning that in a world of uncertainty, of contingency, what matters most is not plans, but alertness. And for alertness, you need sleep. This is what you get, Scoo. This is what you get. This is high quality. Mike Tyson said it best. The best laid plans are thrown out the window when you get punched in the mouth. Yeah. And that's a lot about life, Pete. You know, you, yep. you always want to plan, but you need to be flexible and resilient. You really do. President Shapiro, Professor Morrison, thank you so much for coming on the North Shore podcast. Thank you, guys. It really was great fun. I wish you all the best as you battle and tolerance and you foster free speech and meaningful dialogue. The North Shore podcast. Well, I can, I can tell you guys that one Kindle sale was mine. I'm sure you got an extra 15 cents from it. Don't spend it all in one place. Yeah, Pete, we noticed that day was the only sale. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, we'll have the links to your books on the podcast notes. This witty banter can't wait. Thank you both. God bless you both. Thank you so much for listening to the North Shore Podcast. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you like to hear about in the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete, and I can be reached at Pete at NorthShorePodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes below. On behalf of my co-host, Scoo Walker, we thank you for listening, and cue the Northwestern Band. <laughs>